Welcome back once again to another episode of the Harry Potter Book Club. I'm Trevor. I'm Crystal. I'm Matt. I'm Sylvia. I'm Vera. And I'm Alex. Uh, we want to start uh, this episode by making sure that all of you know how you can reach us. First of all, you can check us out on Twitter at the handle at HPBC Podcast. Uh, and you can also send in questions, comments, or theories uh, to our email address. That's hpbcfanmail at gmail.com. hpbcfanmail at gmail.com. And I especially want to give a shout out to our international listeners. Uh, we were able to check the stats on our latest listens and downloads and notice that we've got listeners uh, in Sweden, China, South Korea, I believe, Indonesia, and possibly Malaysia. Uh, if that's you, uh, we are talking to you. We would love to hear from you. Uh, comments, questions. Um, yeah, we would we would love some global representation in the fan letters that we're able to read and share uh, on an upcoming edition of the podcast. Yeah, and we also have some, th- some really exciting news to share with you all. Um, a couple of us are going to be able to go to Chattanooga in March, where we're going to attend the Literary Ink Wizarding Tattoo Convention. So that's March 9th through the 11th. Um, definitely Matt and I will be there. We're hoping that one Trevor or Sylvia could join us. Um, so one of the reasons we're mentioning that is because we're giving away three day passes. So if you're in the Chattanooga area and you're interested in attending um, either March 9th, 10th, or 11th, we'd love for you to send us an email at that address Trevor just mentioned, and we're going to be doing a drawing so you could win a day pass to that. So if you're interested in entering and not just sending in uh, a piece of fan mail, make sure you indicate uh, in your email that you would like to enter into the giveaway. Crystal, do you want to say something about what you and Matt and potentially uh, others are going to be doing at the convention? Uh, sure. So we're going to have two 30-minute segments. Um, we're sharing the stage with a couple other special guests, but we're going to have at least two 30-minute segments where we're going to be engaging the crowd. And um, We won't give any spoilers right now because... We want that to be a surprise when we get there, but we'll definitely follow up with you all in a later podcast about that. Um, But we'll also have a special booth set up so that we can meet new people and potentially get new followers. We recently got an Instagram in addition to Twitter. It's the same handle. It's uh, HPBC Podcast on Instagram. So check that out. We've posted a couple of things there, and we'll definitely have uh, some photos or maybe go live from the convention. And guys, this uh, Harry Potter Literary Inc., tattoo convention looks to be awesome. I understand one of the co-creators of The Walking Dead is going to be there. Yes. Um, yeah. So lots of special guests, tons of Harry <laughs> Potter fans. So if you're even remotely within driving distance of Chattanooga, definitely consider making the drive. Yeah, definitely. And I'm going to jump in because our final announcement, we have lots of announcements today, is Trevor and I are going to be celebrating his 30th birthday this coming Wednesday with a trip to Harry Potter World in Orlando at Universal Studios. So we are stoked. That's pretty much fulfilling a bucket list dream for us. And we are hopefully going to be doing a mini episode um, live either there or the day after, just kind of giving our experience, um, any insider tips or tricks we might pick up about Harry Potter World. Um, and so just in the in the short term, um, if you guys have any experiences as well that you want to share with us, definitely send those along. Yeah, you can tweet at us or email us because if you can give us the lowdown, uh, save us some hassles, tell us which 
type of butterbeer is best so that we can <laughs> save some money on the ones that aren't as good, uh, we would love your input. Well, I think that covers all the announcements. That, that was quite a bit. But we have to keep you all up to date on what's going on with the Harry Potter Book Club. Uh, now it's time for us to share uh, some correspondence from a listener. Uh, this is uh, an email from Chelsea. And she asks, uh, So I've been wondering, do you think the room where the Mirror of Erised is initially is the room of requirement? Harry needed a place to hide and Dumbledore needed a place to find out what Harry was made of, if we are on the Dumbledore is orchestrating things option. The room of requirement is always equipped with the seeker's needs, and how else would that room happen to be where he needed it to be at just the right moment, and somewhere Dumbledore could hide the mirror with the stone ahead of time? So we've got a theory there on what's going on in uh, the chapter on the mirror of Erised. Thoughts? It's a it's a fascinating proposition. Uh, I do think there are some holes, though, and that uh, later it's indicated. I believe you mentioned before, Trevor, in Book Seven, mm-hmm. that um, it's indicated Dumbledore had never heard of the room requirement. It kind of boggles the mind to think that there's something about Hogwarts that Dumbledore would not have known about, but. It seems fairly evident that uh, he would have looked for Horcruxes there had he known that it existed. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, if you were diehard committed to that theory uh, that Chelsea's email has, you could argue, I'll play devil's advocate here, that <laughs> the only perspective we're given about Dumbledore's knowledge of the Room of Requirement in Book 7 is Harry's perspective where he's theorizing after he's learned where Ravenclaw's diadem is held, he says, Dumbledore must not have known about this. He always said that there were parts of Hogwarts secrets in Hogwarts that he didn't know about. And Harry imagines that Tom probably thought he was the only one who knew, uh, but Harry just happened to know as well. So if you really wanted to press back, you could say, well, Harry thinks Dumbledore didn't Mm -hmm. know. of course, the natural objection would be, uh, well, if Dumbledore knew, then that raises all sorts of other yeah. questions. Yep. I mean, it could be the it could be that the room of requirement that we see that has all the stuff that people want to hide have all been wanting to hide things from the headmaster of Hogwarts, <laughs> and so that room could not possibly be found by the headmaster of Hogwarts, but it could be found by other people who need to also hide things from the headmaster of Hogwarts. Spoken like a real student of philosophy and logic. (laughs) (laughs) Now we're we're getting into it. So, now, again, sort of (laughs) meta-level devil's advocacying, maybe that's how it works all out. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's, it's already... A coincidence, I think, except unless we bring in, you know, that the castle is a character and it's kind of guiding Harry on his on his path. It's already a coincidence that Harry finds the mirror of Erised and then later Dumbledore is able to kind of witness his testing there. It seems like it would be so much more of a coincidence if all of that rested on Harry stumbling upon the room of requirement and needing to be in that room like, needing the room of requirement to be the room where the Mirror of Erised was. Like, that seems even more difficult that Dumbledore would bank on that, hmm. you know? 
Um, also, my one of one of my objections is that that door is ajar. It's an unused classroom with the door ajar, and the room of requirement is never depicted that way. The door is always closed. You have to walk by it a couple of times, and then it kind of appears. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then it's the exact room you need, but it's never just like another part of the castle that was open to you. Right. Yeah, so we've got, at least at the level of narration, we as readers in good faith are led to believe in book seven that Dumbledore did not know about the rumor requirement. And that's supposed to be sort of a big reveal for us. Um, the, the door is never depicted as a jar. And I think uh, another consideration is that we know that uh, the corridor with Fluffy is on the third floor. Mm-hmm. And we know that the room of requirement is on the seventh floor. And so if Harry were to get to the room of requirement in the dark, uh, running away from his pursuer, he would have to somehow make it up four flights of stairs in that short narrative space, which isn't impossible. Um, it's an enchanted castle. Right. Yeah. But I, I think it, it's just one more small yeah. uh, strike against the plausibility of that theory. It's an interesting one, though. Yeah. Yeah. Although, I mean, the the magic of Hogwarts is that it, and, and the Harry Potter canon as a whole, is it does allow us to ask these sorts of questions. And like I said, if you really want to hold on to that, you can make you an can make argument. It work. <laughs> you really yeah. can. Well, shall we jump into our chapter? Yes. yes. Uh, Do it. This uh, edition of the HPBC, we are looking at chapter 14, Norbert the Norwegian Ridgeback. So I'll start us off here uh, by reading uh, a small uh, passage from the first page of that chapter. Uh, Rowling writes, Whenever Harry passed Quirrell these days, he gave him an encouraging sort of smile, and Ron had started telling people off for laughing at Quirrell's stutter. Uh, I was struck here by the description of Harry and Ron's pretty obvious and overt compassion for a a character who was being maligned, a character who's depicted as weaker or in need. My my question for you all is, A, do you agree that that's what's going on? But, but B, and more importantly, do you, if, if this is compassion that we're seeing, do you think that Harry and Ron lose this as they age? Or do they remain compassionate people, compassionate characters as... The books progress. Hmm. Well, I'm going to jump in and say I think they lose it to an extent. And I think to an extent we all do if we think back to our kindergarten selves and how we looked up to our teachers. And by middle school, you're, you know, maybe making fun of your teachers or just like more critical um, as we get older and that cynicism comes in. And I think we see the same thing with Harry and Ron. It's hard for me to think of an example when they would be that compassionate to an outsider really ever um that's more Hermione's domain in my perspective going forward in the series I think you do see the compassion at times it's more geared towards I think other students like towards their friends and and people like people like Neville and uh and Luna there's there's sort of special ostracized characters that you could see especially Harry being compassionate too. I think Ron loses it more than Harry does. 
But I think, yeah, like like Sylvia says, there's a cynicism and a distrust that sets in, especially because they keep being wrong about people. They keep trusting teachers, and then those teachers are evil. So, <laughs> so um, you can't blame them, really. right? So you can't blame them really because you know they misplaced their trust. I think often their compassion lies with the people that they value. So um, people like Hagrid, I mean, they're always compassionate towards Hagrid. Mm -hmm. I mean, how many times does he get himself in these horrible situations and they bail him out when really it should be his own responsibility to do it? We're in a chapter where that happens right now. Right. I I almost mentioned that, but they're still young in this chapter. So if we're looking at the future, they are still very compassionate towards Hagrid. But then Mm -hmm. I think of someone like Trelawney where they're just brutal towards Mm -hmm. her most of the time. Even Hermione is brutal towards towards Trelawney. Well, so. she and Trelawney have, like, a very... They've got issues. Yeah. Well, it's also a class, right, that she's... The one uh, one class that she's actually not good, yeah. or she doesn't perform well in. So. Right. So I, I think what came to mind when I was asking this question of, of myself was there are, like, key moments where I wanted Harry to be the kind of person who looked out for the weak, mm-hmm. and I didn't feel like he came through. Uh... One is sort of the his dismissiveness towards someone like Colin Creevy. Mm. I I wanted him to be compassionate and patient with somebody like that. But also, I mean, there are times in later books before their friendship with Luna is established that I think you could say they're brutal in the ways that they talk about Luna outside of her presence. Um which I suppose to one extent is understandable. In the narrative, she is an out-there sort of character. She's supposed to generate those sorts of reactions from us as readers. But I always I always found myself slightly disheartened to hear um, Harry speak about characters like Luna in dismissive or disdainful ways um, before he gets to know her. I think... I think really, though, that's the beauty of, of J.K.'s writing, because he's a very human character. Yeah. There's a lot of times where, you know, we see him behaving compassionately, and we're like, yes, he's the chosen one. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's a really great guy. And then there's times where he just, he misses the mark. And it's like, okay, yeah, he's a 16-year-old boy. Now I remember. Um, so I think, you know, it, it may be purposeful. She's allowing him to behave the way any boy of that age would. They would talk about somebody weird behind their back, mm-hmm. somebody obnoxious. Yeah, I definitely I definitely agree with you on that point. Mm-hmm. That if he was always the kind of person we wanted him to be, we'd be sitting here in our podcast episode saying, that's not realistic. Like, yeah. where are his character flaws? Right. Where's his, you know, sort of growth as a human being? Mm-hmm. So that's an important point. Yeah. Um, also at the beginning of this chapter... Uh, <laughs> I mean, we find that uh, Quirrell is getting uh, paler and thinner. Um, And in that, I guess knowing what we know after reading the entire book, we think that he's getting pale and thin because he's having to stand up to Snape. And this answer may be obvious, but I mean, why do you guys think he's getting paler and thinner at this moment? He's he's got a parasite (laughs) on the back of his head. Yeah. So I wondered if it was like, is Voldemort literally draining his resources physically? Or is Voldemort just putting so much pressure on him because he's not performing the way he should? He's not getting to the stone quickly enough. 
that's and, and I think I don't know if, if it's indicated really, but I I think Voldemort probably knows that Snape is sort of on to Quirrell, so he's just failing in his mission. And so I wondered if he's failing under the pressure of not performing well or if it's, you know, just literally he's got Voldemort in the back of his head now. Yeah, or some combination. Yeah, of... all of those. Yep. As a fun little detail, um, as they are studying for some of their exams that um, are only 10 weeks away, Hermione says, um, <laughs> We, we find at the bottom of 229 that Harry is looking up Dittany mm -hmm. in the book 1,000 Magical Herbs and, and Fungi. I thought that was a fun little detail. And yeah. I just wrote in the margin, he's going to need it. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> it's that and the bezoar, or how, however you want to pronounce it, those end up being like the, the two things that are medically, magically necessary um, if you're going to be a wizard at Hogwarts or, you know, fighting the Dark Lord. So one thing about the Dittany that I actually wrote down too that I thought was interesting is in book seven when Harry is packing his uh, rucksack, getting ready to leave, he cuts his, or he's cleaning out his trunk, I think, he cuts his hand on that jagged piece of Sirius's mirror. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he says something to the effect of, he had no idea how to repair it, which seemed like a flaw in his magical education. And then when I was reading this, I thought, but he did learn about yeah, it. Yeah, and he, he learned about it. he just completely forgot because he was so distracted by chasing Snape. Well, and you would just, you would think that if you're a wizard and you know nothing else about magic, you've at least learned how to stop your body from hurting. Yeah. Like, especially if it's as easy as Essence of Dittany. Mm -hmm. Well, see, I don't know. As a, you know, a teenager, I guess they're becoming teenagers, you know, like, is that really what you're wanting to learn? I know maybe as, you know, young wizard boys, you know, maybe you're wanting to learn how to blow things up. I, I, I don't know, like levitate thing, levitate your, your pet or your, your younger brother. I, I mean, those, those are the kind I of mean, things that I'm thinking I want to learn. My first, my thought is that, like, this would be one of those first lessons in, you know, the sort of, wizarding boy scouts you know like yeah. you get your first day you have everybody has to go through the cpr training in know. high school everybody yeah. goes through you know learning basic magical first aid you know i don't the, know why the, madame pomfrey doesn't teach a class because that's super useful and a lot of a lot of we know one of the big employers of adult wizards is saint mungo's so there's people that have learned to be healers somewhere but they're not teaching any of that at hogwarts they must have to go to medical school yeah so there's somewhere there's a magical medical school it is interesting because having read a lot of other fiction you think of the magicians or books like that series in in the fantasy genre there often is like a healer or you know that's a part of the schooling system of these other institutions in the other universes so that i think that's a good point yeah madame pomfrey should totally teach a class <laughs> i think she's just she's just giving it away you know <laughs> well moving to page 232 um we learn from hagrid uh that uh, a number of professors have put enchantments around the sorcerer's stone right and he includes Professor Quirrell uh, in that list. That combined with an, an observation later in Chelsea's email, she mentions that Quirrell's enchantment was the troll, uh, 
and that Quirrell um, fainted yelling about a troll in the dungeons on Halloween. And one one of the things that she was bringing up was, isn't that at least a little bit suspicious? And that sort of got me thinking. So we know Quirrell fainted about the troll in the dungeon on Halloween. At least by this point, Hagrid knows that Quirrell has added his enchantment to, uh, to guarding the Sorcerer's Stone. We know that Snape obviously suspects Quirrell because just six pages before this, we've got their encounter uh, at night, like at the edge of the Forbidden Forest. Uh, where an owl conveniently hoots, and so we miss a huge piece of the plot. Um, But also, in book seven, uh, when Harry is in the Ponceve looking at Snape's memories, Snape has a memory of Dumbledore at some point during this time uh, just casually saying to him, keep an eye on Quirrell for me. And I'm thinking, with all of these pieces of evidence that were given why is Dumbledore not doing something about this guy uh, if Snape his his sort of his ace up his sleeve is suspicious Dumbledore has told him to be suspicious and then we've got this issue with the troll inconsistency do you all have any way how we can untangle that am I wrong to be suspicious of this I mean, it's kind of an armchair bias, maybe, because we know what happens. But I think you're right, and you're on the right tr- track. I mean, maybe Dumbledore's using a keep your enemies close, you know, tactic here. I'm, I'm not sure, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, maybe he doesn't have enough evidence to go on. Make, we we've got to remember that there are two people here. That it's not just Quirrell. It's it's Voldemort in the back of his head, and we know Voldemort is tricky and. You know, maybe he just doesn't have enough to to go after him right now. I I don't know. My thought at at first was maybe it's just too obvious. Like, you know how sometimes it's just the craziest plan that actually works? Maybe wearing a ridiculous purple turban and hiding the Dark Lord underneath it (laughs) is like just ludicrous of an idea that Dumbledore is like, nah. I mean, Voldemort sticking himself on the back of Quirrell's head and just walking around in front of me all the time. That's, that is that is too insane of an idea for him to... He's like, no, that, that can't work. No way. Hmm. He's suspicious, but it can't be that Voldemort's attached to his head. So, well, we, we've talked about this before, yeah. but this idea of how much does Dumbledore know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think the other, another option um, is Dumbledore does know what's going on, pieces and parts of it, but he knows, hey, okay, there's a prophecy and I'm going to trust that Harry will stay alive um, to get to where he needs to be to fulfill this prophecy. And so therefore this is all training ground. And it's actually that very intentional um, allowing Harry to get into harm's way that we see over and over. That's exactly what I was thinking, too. And we have, you're right, we've talked about it multiple times. But, uh, I mean, I think it's really suspicious. Other than the fact that Quirrell is the defense against the dark arts teacher, maybe he has a troll 
randomly. Uh, maybe I this one's trained. I think it's the same troll. I know, it could be the same troll. More efficient. Yeah, <laughs> I think they were like, well, I don't know what we're going to do with this troll that snuck into the castle. Let's just drop it down the trapdoor. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it has, it has to be some other way than getting it down the trapdoor because... Yes, it, I'm sure there's there's a back entrance to the... Or, you know, some sort of, like, <laughs> transfiguration, right, and turn him into a silver goblet, throw the silver goblet down, sure. re-untransformation yeah. him back. <laughs> re-untransformation. Yeah, this, this is a magical world, so the I, options are endless here, really. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I think there's a reason why the... How much does Dumbledore know question keeps popping up? And uh, frankly, it's because none of the explanations, as far as I know, that any fan of the series has been able to put forward has struck a wide uh, swath of the audience as really satisfactory. So every time we come to another detail, it's like, but what do do we do about that? Because even if he's uh, putting Harry in harm's way, knowing things have to work out. I mean, if you think about it, the Dark Lord is inches away from the Sorcerer's Stone, which lets him achieve what all seven books are about the Dark Lord achieving. Mm-hmm. Immortality. Yeah. He, he would have the elixir of life if the Sorcerer's Stone sitting in the mirror of Erised gets in his hand. And if Dumbledore is orchestrating all of this... Um, He's running a high risk by allowing Voldemort to get that close. Um, and I may be missing something, but I'm not sure that the prophecy is even specific enough to give a lot of confidence about how things are going to turn out. Like the prophecy is about the it's conflict really big, yeah. that's going to be between the Dark Lord and the child. Um, <laughs> Which could have happened when he was 11 and that's it. But, yeah, well, it's like they have the conflict. Neither can live while the other survives. Okay, well, well like, Voldemort takes care of Harry, and now the, the prophecy has been fulfilled, but not in the way, you know, that makes for a great series of stories. So I see where the explanations are going, but listeners, we're probably going to be harping on this with every new detail mm-hmm. that comes along in the series of stories, just trying to work out... The psychology mm-hmm. of our wizened old headmaster, um, which maybe we're supposed to be asking this question because even when Snape finally learns that Dumbledore has sort of been pulling some strings, he has a really hard time swallowing that pill. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know about you guys, but I really liked the scene, uh, and I guess I really liked the scenes when they bring up you know, ways to fit this universe here into our universe. And by this, I mean, you know, they find Hagrid in the library and he sticks out like a sore thumb because they're saying, what is, you know, why is Hagrid here? Uh, And they find out that he's looking up dragons and then Harry asks the question, but there aren't wild dragons in Britain, right? You know, and, and Ron says, of course there are. And you know, there's common Welsh greens, and the Ministry of Magic is having just all kinds of trouble all the time, you know, like making sure that uh, muggles, their memories are erased and, and all that. And, and just to me, I love that when they put things like that in, in the book. I mean, just to make it seem that it could be, you know, it's plausible. You know, like <laughs> maybe, you know, like there are really wizards out there that are 
there, there's at least an explanation. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know. I really enjoyed that. And there's one other book in the series that really makes just a beautiful connection with our world. Uh, and that's book six, mm-hmm. where there's the whole scene with the Minister of Magic and the Prime Minister mm-hmm. of uh, Great Britain, which, uh, uh, listeners, we just did an Instagram uh, sort of Q&A where we talked about favorite books in the whole series. I argued rather forcefully that book six is clearly the best one of all. And yet we and I think three this out is a, of six voting for book four, so I don't but know. But I think what, what I just brought up is a clear reason why Matt should agree with me. <laughs> Um, given his fondness for connections to the real world. Yeah. Uh, I mean... Did I change your mind? You didn't change my mind. No, I still love the Goblet of Fire. (laughs) But, uh, I mean, again, I've said it, you know, and I know we've mentioned it in past episodes, but I love how she's able to tie this in and make it at least seem that, you know, that world is there. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just maybe we've experienced it and we just can't remember anymore. Especially if you're a kid reading this. Mm-hmm. Like, it's harder as an adult, but I remember reading this as a sixth grader and thinking, like, whoa, maybe I've actually seen a dragon, but I've been, you know, obliviated. I didn't know it was obliviated <laughs> at that point, but how cool. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, I mean, if you're a British kid reading this, you go to King's Cross, mm-hmm. and you look between your platforms 9 and 10, and, wow, you know, who knows? <laughs> like, but actually setting a fantasy novel in the real world. I mean, when Sylvie and I had a chance a couple years ago to visit London and go to King's Cross Station, clearly we knew, well, we were 99% sure that there was no platform nine and three quarters. 98% sure. (laughs) But, um, you know, there were signs saying, this is it, this is it. And it allows you to like inhabit those sort of mythical spaces in a really fun way. Mm So Hagrid is looking up dragons because he has procured a dragon egg from a stranger in the village. Um, and the stranger was very glad to get rid of it. Yeah, I wonder why a stranger would be wanting to get rid of illegal goods. Yeah. I don't know, it could have been a black market smuggler, you know, had just this precious item. I mean... Of course, we know a little bit more sure. going on, but you never know. I he's mean, just not that suspicious. It's, it's true. And, uh, you know, I mean, obviously he's glad to be rid of it. And we see, I mean, just the almost, I mean, I guess really comical scenes of how, I guess, touchy-feely he is for this <laughs> lizard creature that is biting and vicious. And uh, I found that whole scene pretty humorous. Yeah, I love, I love the scope of it, of him growing... At this insane rate, and and Hagrid is just <laughs> feeding it on chicken blood and brandy. Yeah, what a diet! Yeah, it's so brandy and chicken. There's blood. chicken feathers everywhere. He's killed so many chickens for this dragon, <laughs> and there's brandy bottles everywhere. And this thing is just getting bigger and bigger in his tiny little hut. <laughs> his I wooden just, house. In his yeah. wooden hut. Yes, people live in a who wooden live house, in Hagrid. wooden houses should not own dragons. And and he's snapping at him. And and he's just just so in love with this thing. And I, I, I really kind of wish that that we had gotten to see Norbert grow up a little bit more in the movie. 
Because it's it's just so comical. I love I love yeah. the way it plays out in the book. No, do you think that this uh, this diet that he has to feed Norbert would arouse suspicion, or was this just be sort of normal? Like, would people be weirded out? Be like. There's a lot of empty brandy bottles and dead chickens at Hagrid's, at Hagrid's, Hagrid's house. house. Or is it like, oh, par for the course? It's just, it's just Hagrid. <laughs> right? He's a giant. He could he could consume fourteen bottles of brandy in an afternoon and not feel it. Or is it like, are you feeling okay, Hagrid? Do you need to talk? You know, well, I think if anybody was going to get away with it, you know, the gamekeeper could get away. Yeah. I mean, he's taking right. care of magical creatures, <laughs> and some of those eat meat. And... It's funny though that we're told Hagrid has been like neglecting his duties as gamekeeper yeah. Yeah. around Hogwarts. So you wonder if some of like Trelawney, who we know uh, knows how to tip the bottle herself is looking at Hagrid seeing these brandy bottles and the fact that the grounds aren't being taken care of and she's like oh I feel you Hagrid <laughs> I've been there maybe want to offer some support right is you know you'd wonder maybe in the village is there is there like a wizarding yeah. AA yeah. is there like a I don't know Butterbeer's Anonymous or something it's, I don't think Butterbeer is alcoholic it is but it's so light because it gets winky drunk in book four. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's more fire whiskey, right? Fire, yeah, dangerous. fire whiskey is the hard stuff. Yeah. That's um, funny. So, so this issue with Norbert is progressing. The kids finally manage to convince him that he can't keep the illegal dragon in his wooden hut. And they come up with the idea of sending it to Charlie, Ron's brother, in Romania. And I don't know if you guys had a problem with it. I didn't as a kid, but now, like, it is so easy for Charlie to be like, oh, yeah, sure, that sounds fine. Some of my buddies will come and get him. Like, it just seems like a really easy fix. Yeah. I mean, I'll I'll kind of agree with you there. It does seem like an easy fix, and... Also, the plan, you know, I don't want to skip too far ahead, and I don't want to talk about, I guess, the, the last scene, but one thing about this plan was that didn't jive with me. It, their friends, Charlie's friends, were able to fly into Hogwarts mm-hmm. and uh-huh. pick up this dragon yes. and then just fly out. And we know in later books that there are spells and enchantments mm-hmm. that you can't just do that. I mean, so this, this is, is before Voldemort has showed himself in any way true. to Dumbledore, though. Like that's Dumbledore true. is suspicious, but after after book one, he is aware that Voldemort is in some form or another back. So I I can at least concede a little that maybe the spells around the castle are not quite as strict yeah. as they are after he realizes Voldemort has come back in some way. That's well, we we my... we know you can't apparate into Hogwarts. There's yeah. definitely, but I guess flying is not. Yeah. One other question I would have with this is that we know that the ownership and breeding of dragons is severely regulated. Why would the transportation of dragons also not be similarly regulated? You know, I would think that like a group of friends could not just be like, you know, I'm going to just take a very powerful magical creature that could easily be weaponized Mm -hmm. and just 
cross international borders with yeah, her. Yeah, that's, you know, that's it's what like, bothered me. Where is Dragon Customs? Right. Or, or permitting what's, what's or some kind of official... TSA up to? Because is there a CDL for driving dragons? Exactly right. Because, the, you know, he Charlie mentions, you know, it would be, it would be really bad for them to be seen yeah. carrying mm. an illegal dragon. No so kidding. meet him at the Talus Tower. Okay, so that helps on this end, but then they got to get into Romania with a crate but strapped between two broomsticks right what you got in there that is clearly full of a, an adolescent dragon and no. maybe they're know. gonna get out of the hogwarts area then apparate where they i don't know there's yeah I, you can't regulate you can't regulate the skies either if they're flying like how are you going to regulate if they're crossing it just it right. seems like smuggling would be a way bigger issue because it seems so mm. easy and when you can yeah. do things like transfiguration if you could Transfigure the dragon into something else, right? Or or whatever else it may be. You know, it seems like you're totally right when you have a world in which you can take something that is illegal and transfigure it into something that is legal, and then retransfigure it back <laughs> at any time. <laughs> smuggling would be the easiest thing. Yeah, why couldn't really? they do that to begin with? It must yeah. be really hard to transfigure a baby dragon. Maybe, but, but that's maybe as a magical creature, idea. it's more difficult to transfigure it into something else because it's sort of magical. Yeah. Protections. It'd be inherent. hilarious if they transfigured the dragon into fruit, but then they were stopped at the board. No, you can't bring foreign fruit in here. <laughs> you know, on every customs declaration, they're like, do you have any fruit? <laughs> do you have any soils <laughs> that you're carrying with you? Well, I guess i got to take this dirt out of my pocket that I was given, but no. Nope. Uh, also remember, book three, Sirius, um, as a dog, is able to get to Hogwarts. So we do know that it's possible for outsiders to make their way and actually get onto the grounds right. and I mean, and that's when there's the castle. That's when there's really high right. Yeah, um, but he knew secrets. Yeah, high alert. Yeah. Yeah. He knew how to get in, you know, yeah. on the underground. These people just fly Shrinking. in. Well, that's true. But I mean, if he could get to Hogsmeade, say, uh-huh. well, then you could you could get to Hogwarts. I mean, you know where it is. And I think yeah, if. If defenses are at their lowest in book one, it's conceivable. Yeah. Um, I, although I think this does get to a larger point, which is the whole Norbert plot line spans one chapter, mm-hmm. beginning to end. We go from egg to Norbert flying out of the book uh, within the space of really less than a chapter. Right. Um, and as I read it, I was like, man, this is just, it's a little bit too neat and tidy for me. Yeah. So I thought maybe it would be helpful for us, but also for our listeners to consider what is Rowling doing in the um, development of this narrative uh, with the Norbert plotline. Uh, mm. Is it just whimsical fun being introduced uh, you know, and then poof, it's gone in a few pages. Um, or is she actually weaving it into the story in a very important way for the plot? Well, obviously something happens that we haven't said yet, uh, and that's that Malfoy sees the dragon. And therefore, you know, he always wants to get Harry and his gang in trouble uh, when he can. And so, you know, this whole ordeal leads them into the Forbidden Forest, which is the next chapter. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so you could say it's a plot device yeah, for yeah, yeah. that. Yeah. I and definitely think that's important. Yeah. 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 And it's definitely character development for Hagrid. This is the first time we're seeing him 
Well, I mean, I guess we don't really see him interact with Fluffy. We just know he has this kind of um, affinity for not so cuddly magical creatures. But then we're actually seeing him interact with this dragon. So it's a little bit more of character development for him. Yeah. And sort of setting up the way that the kids <laughs> repeatedly help him out of scrapes mm-hmm. when he's supposed to be the adult in the situation. I guess it's, it's introducing dragons as magical creatures mm-hmm. in a really sort of hands-on, in-your-face way, which uh, comes back around by book four. So if we're looking long-term, it does something there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I it is it is sort of a, a one-off kind of situation, because I'm trying to think of the other magical creatures that we that we see Haggard dealing with, and they all have a more important part to play in the plot. Like, obviously, Fluffy is, is guarding the stone, and then later, Buckbeak is a big, pivotal sort mm-hmm. of um, plot device, and Grop, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. later, is, is part of the story. And so... And Aragog. And Aragog, yeah. Who, so, which ends up being one of the most hysterical scenes, I think, in all seven books. Aragog's funeral. In the, in the sixth oh, movie. Oh, man. Oh, man. That's great. Yeah, that is and great. the after party. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it it is just sort of I think, aside from the uh, the few things that we mentioned, I think it's more of just a whimsical sort of moment. Well, speaking of Aragog's after party, that's a moment where Harry gets folks tipsy <laughs> in order to extract information from someone, Slughorn, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think the only other thing I can see this doing is that it it gives in the narrative a moment where the solution to the fluffy problem gets spilled because we learn that Hag later on that Hagrid was drinking <laughs> quite expansively because he missed Norbert. Yeah. And and there we go. Well, I, I mean, we, he also tells Harry that he's always wanted a dragon. So, I mean, since, I guess, the first time they met, right? Mm-hmm. So, the seed's been planted there. That, that's something, a dragon is something Hagrid wants. And it's something that, you know, he will play cards, he will get. And then over, you know, that card game, you know, obviously, I mean, Hermione can get him to, to spill his guts just by kind of making him feel important, you know, kind of. Uh, puffing him up, you know, in pride and all that. So, I mean, obviously right. Hagrid's not the best secret right. holder. Yeah. Now, am I am I remembering this correctly, that Hagrid spills the beans about Fluffy on the night he gets Norbert? Yes. yes. Yeah. So, we're, that was Quirrell. Mm-hmm. Right. That, that he was with, <laughs> getting him tipsy. Yeah, the stranger. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, and then giving giving him... The egg, but also Hagrid spills the beans about um, how to get past Fluffy. I, I think that is also maybe one of the big things that's going on in the development of the narrative um, with this. Yeah. But even with all that, so you know, when we we look at it from that perspective, okay, she actually does use this really small sort of narrative mm-hmm. uh, within the narrative uh, in a pretty substantial way, and yet. It still just ends kind of neat and tidy, mm-hmm. um, which is odd in just this, the, the whole Harry Potter canon. 
Yeah. Most of the time, you have to play the long game with a plot thread right. in order to get the payoff. Oh, we don't know. This is the end. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Norbert's coming back. What Norbert might do in the future. I suppose that is true. How long do dragons live? <laughs> a so- long time. <laughs> in Cursed Child 2, <laughs> Norbert, Norbert is actually... I, I have heard rumors that he's a starring character. Oh. <laughs> it's a pretty Norbert-centric plot. Oh. <laughs> Well, that would be a change. (laughs) So one of the things that Matt just said made me think, um, when I was reading this, I thought, you know, how this this stranger that Hagrid meets in what I'm assuming is the Hogshead Inn, Mm -hmm. how did he know that Hagrid wanted a dragon? Like, did he just have really random creatures or things in his pocket? Or when Hagrid was with Harry in Diagon Alley the first time where we met Quirrell, was he, like, following around and listening to Harry and like kind of stalking them. Hmm. That is a good question. I like to think that Hagrid's just a a big fluffy person at heart, you know, and like will just kind of spill out his guts to anybody, and like that's just something that he's passionate about. Is wild creatures, and I don't. I think probably most of the teachers in the teachers' lounge know that. He wants a dragon. He'd love to have a dragon. Right. He'd have it. And Voldemort knows, right, was that Hagrid was the Chamber of Secrets. Yes. He knows he has a weakness for creatures. Yeah, yeah. that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Did anybody else wonder, like, what the, yeah, that's good. what the cards were like? I mean, because when they said they played cards, <laughs> Not at all. my first thought was, like, what game? Are they playing, like, was it? normal cards? That yeah. was your first thought? Like what? Like what? I mean, are they playing poker? Are they playing black? Like, what do wizards that are meeting in pubs, possibly gambling, playing? Other, are they playing than, our games? Or are they playing than, uh, wizards chess? I don't know. Exploding snap. Exploding snap is what I just thought of. Yeah. They have a card game we hear about, exploding snap. So maybe something like that. I, I know like you could gamble. Game. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you can gamble with exploding snap though. I mean, like, and as much as. It's gonna explode. <laughs> it's that always sounded enough, to me yeah. more like a more like one of those quick paced slapping card games, you know that that teenagers yeah. love to play, um, and this seems more like, you know, like poker, like poker something. or something. Yeah. But sure. we never get any other information about the cards. We don't know if they look like our kind of cards or if they look like something totally different. Um, but that would be great. I'm sorry, JK, that's a if you're listening. Universe for you. Yeah. Well, so I like your thread, Sylvia, yeah, right I want there, to go because back to that, yeah. obviously Tom Riddle right. has known Hagrid for a yeah. long time. Yeah. I think that's That's, that's something brilliant. that never occurred to me. That, uh, and <laughs> Voldemort's the kind of guy who would hold on to information that he could use against someone uh-huh. for his own profit. Um I think that is a really sustainable, solid answer to that question. Yeah. yeah. Although my my hypothesis before you threw out that brilliant thing was that <laughs> Hogwarts or excuse me, Voldemort is still really powerful, and so Hagrid let spill that he wanted a dragon, and then Voldemort made a dragon's egg appear in Quirrell's turban. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, when I say it out loud, <laughs> it sounds yeah. even worse than it sounded in my head. That's pretty bad. That would require a very large hood. That's, that's a little bad. come out of Voldemort's mouth. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh look! I, actually, right in my turban. I have a 
That's a little too magical, even for this world. Yeah. Yeah. But I think yeah. Sil's Sil's explanation just has a little bit more consistency. Yeah. To it. Yeah. How would you even avoid moving the hood off? Because he doesn't know the guy, right? He's a stranger. Yeah. So he has has to have his face hooded the whole time. Yeah. And yet he gets. An egg out yeah, from I, behind his know, head. I don't think it works. We're not gonna. Yeah. We're not gonna give it any credence. <laughs> Mechanically, no, it's not gonna work. No. Maybe an Accio. Maybe it's like Accio. Accio egg. Dragon's egg. Wow. Yeah. How how is smuggling not a huge problem in the magical community? All you have to do is be like Accio contraband, and you've got it. I don't, now, no. <laughs> now I'm really concerned about oh, crime. Oh gosh, and that reminds me, we need to do an episode soon, listeners. If any of you have watched uh, Origins of the Air, we recently watched that, and we kind of want to do a special episode on that sometime soon. So yeah. that, that makes me think of Hepzibah Smith. Um, mm. And I do think mm. smuggling is we. I mean, we even see with Tom Riddle some of that. Um, so okay, just yeah. a sidebar, listeners. Yeah. We might have that. If coming. you've seen it. Uh, and you have comments to share uh, about the fan-made movie, Origins of the Air, send your thoughts in uh, to us as well. So, one of the things that bothers me the most in this chapter, I'm sure we're all thinking it, is just why this was Harry, Ron, and Hermione's problem to get rid of. Mm -hmm. And I think, like, when I was thinking about this today, I thought, Hagrid knows that the Sorcerer's Stone has already been... has. Someone has attempted to steal it once already. And we don't know who that was, but it's it's this powerful object that people are wanting. And yet he sends Harry, Ron, and Hermione out of bed in the middle of the night to take this dragon away in this top tower where there's probably not a whole lot of security. And he just willingly sends them along rather than taking care of this himself. They've convinced him. They've, they've pretty much figured out every part of it for him. Like, mm -hmm. Charlie will meet you here or his friends will meet you here. And yet, Hagrid, who would be in no trouble at all if he's in this tower, just sits in his hut, you know, <laughs> crying his eyes out, rather than getting rid of this problem himself. It just bugs me. Hmm. I mean, as much as he is an incredibly sympathetic character, very compassionate and kind, and, you know, somewhat of a father, at least big brother character to the kids in a lot of ways, he's not a responsible adult. Right. I mean, that's... Over and over, he proves that he's over-emotional and he's um, maybe not self-centered, but just kind of oblivious yeah. to a lot of, you know, what no a normal adult would be, <laughs> would be um, more cognizant of. He puts the kids in danger because he's not thinking about it. Um which I guess makes him kind of a foil to Dumbledore, who puts kids in danger because he's thinking about it very carefully. Mm -hmm. I think on a literary level, um, we could look at this in terms of like uh, role reversal. Mm -hmm. hmm. The caretaker becomes the care taken. And Harry, who depended on Hagrid um, to... Well, really, at the very beginning of the book and on through his uh, genesis at, at Hogwarts uh, now is one who, with his friends, is taking responsibilities for Hagrid's fate. Um, and I think there is a certain age where you're not really old enough to offer substantial help mm 
mm-hmm. or or you you should it shouldn't be on your shoulders, and yet you're more than willing to try. You're know, sort of rosy-eyed um, and confident about your own capacity to take care of things. It strikes me that Hermione, especially. Mm-hmm. Is is that kind of character who even at eleven years old is like, oh fine, I'll do it. You know, we can we can make this work. You know, um, so yeah, I think literarily, but also in terms of the characters, there's there maybe maybe some things going on there. Why do you think Malfoy didn't just turn Hagrid in? Like, he sees the dragon. It would be so much easier to get them all in trouble if he's just like, hey, they're at Hagrid's when they shouldn't be. And by the way, he has a dragon. Mm. But instead he, like, gloats, which is just, that is, you know, quintessential Malfoy. Mm -hmm. But to hold on to it until he ends up getting in trouble himself, maybe that's his character flaw, is he just wants to wait until it's the worst of the worst before he gets them in trouble. Holding on to it is like the crucio of... Like dirt bag things that you could do. It's like the way to torch. Like I've got this, like this upper hand on you, but I'm not gonna use it yet. I'm gonna make you sweat, and I'm gonna let you know that I've got it, and I'm just gonna torture you with it for a yeah. while. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, he just wants to maximize. I think the pain that he's getting ready to dish out, and he's waiting for that moment. And then, of course, uh, he gets that moment when. He goes up and uh, borrows a book, or says he wants to borrow a book to study, you know, from Ron. From one of the, he, he tells a teacher that that's what he's there for, and gets the note and knows exactly where they're going to be. Mm-hmm. He gets the plan, and he realizes, man, a, a Christmas present just landed yeah. right mm-hmm. in my lap. He's, like, he's really running hot, yeah. you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's he's on it's a good, hot it's street. It's a good week yeah. for Malfoy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but who is the one who foils Malfoy's plan? Neville. Neville. <laughs> Good Neville, <laughs> which is foreshadowing for us, but it's also, I mean, we talked about this chapter as being a sort of revelation of character. Um, and Neville is the same all the way throughout. He can be depended upon to even be irresponsible in his loyalty. Not irresponsible, but to put himself at risk mm-hmm. um, with a kind of bravery that Neville doesn't often get credit for, but you know he's courageous throughout, putting himself at risk to help people who, frankly, and this goes back to the very first question I asked, mm-hmm. I still don't think treat Neville the way that he deserves. Yeah, yeah. because he's never really in the in crowd, uh, even among the Gryffindors. I think after the Battle of Hogwarts, he got into the in crowd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just took to the seventh book. Yeah. In the last chapter. In the last chapter. When he wields the sword yeah, of Gryffindor. Gryffindor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he. the cool thing is he's like the hero of that scene. Yeah. I mean, right. he is the one who resists okay. Voldemort and keeps breaking free from his spell. Well, and and, and yeah. we learn, like, so on, an, cool. on an objective level, that um, the, what is it, the sorting hat helps those, like, who are worthy. The, the sword presents itself to those who are worthy. Help will always happen at Hogwarts to those who are worthy. Neville is depicted there. He is a worthy character. Mm-hmm. Um, he, and it really is this, this beautiful vindication. Um, but the seeds of that character, under this bumbling sort of fearful 
uh, little kid, it, it's, it's still all there. Mm-hmm. Well, at the very end of this chapter, we see them coming down from the uh, tower where they've finally gotten rid of Norbert, Harry, and Hermione. And they run into Filch and realize that they left the invisibility cloak on top of the tower. I mean, come on. Really? That is a rookie move. I uh, know. <laughs> but it's just like an 11-year-old kid who leaves their coat everywhere. Yeah. Like, that. that is just something that kids do. And they were caught up in the moment. They were so excited to see, I almost said Hagrid, but <laughs> Norbert, you know, flying away and... <clears throat> They just didn't think about it. And I think that that's such a carefree attitude that kids actually have. So to me, that was completely realistic. Right. With one of the Deathly Hallows. Just, oh, whoops. Where did we put that? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my Deathly Hallow. I left it it on the top of the tower. And of course, if you were already suspicious of how nice and tidy this chapter was with the Norbert plotline, the, oh, I forgot my invisibility cloak on top of the tower... Therefore, I get in trouble and make my way to the Forbidden Forest. Mm-hmm. That's just a little too clean cut for you. But granted, it's the shortest book of them all. Mm-hmm. And so you got to get the plot moving somehow. Yeah. I thought it was kind of messed up that Professor McGonagall only takes 20 points from Malfoy and she takes 50 from each Harry, Ron, and, or sorry, Harry, Hermione, and Neville. Like, she just goes so much harder on her own house, and I think that just shows her expectations are higher, but yeah. I just thought, how messed up is that? Well, she's the anti-Snape. Yep. Snape, yeah. Snape goes easy on his house, mm-hmm. which makes us hate him. Yes. McGonagall yeah. is harder on her house, including Harry, Ron, and Hermione, which makes us not love her as much as we otherwise would. <laughs> <laughs> we end up liking less and less. The, the professors at Hogwarts, when we see the way they discipline. Until you're an adult, and then you're like, yeah, McGonagall, that was a smart move. Right. Yeah. yeah. That was very formative, McGonagall. They needed that. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of the chapter, and to the end of another episode of the Harry Potter Book Club. We thank you uh, for spending some time with us and talking about uh, this chapter of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, be sure to read ahead to chapter 15, The Forbidden Forest. That's the the piece of the book that we will be covering next time. In the meantime, remember to check us out on Twitter and Instagram. Our handles are HPBC Podcast, and send your comments and questions to hpbcfanmail at gmail.com. And one more thing, if you missed our Instagram live tonight, we, on our Instagram page, have posted some pictures of the delicious home-cooked dinner that we had. So to get some behind the scenes of the setup for Harry Potter Book Club, definitely check out our Instagram. Yeah. All right, everybody. One, two, three. Mischief Mischief Managed. Managed.